to our socialist book club. It's me, it's Martin. And it's me, Lydia, and with us today is our friend Christy, who has suggested to us this incredible text, Support the Girls, which is a film that is about a specific experience within the service industry, which Christy is also an expert on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christy. I'm so pleased to be to be here and to get to share this time with my friends today and to discuss this wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah, Thank I'm, you so I'm much for sharing it with us. Delighted that this is happening. Yeah. Um, okay, so support the girls. I hadn't heard of this at all um, before you suggested watching it. I love the movie. Um, I've only seen it once. Christy, you've watched it multiple times. I think the so I watched it today before recording and I think that was my fifth watch like viewing of it mm -hmm. it's the kind of movie that I could imagine watching three or four times well <laughs> when I'm when I'm pitching it to like friends I always say it's a tight 90 with credits and that mm -hmm. always gets people's attention yeah <laughs> very very respectful of people's time mm -hmm. So, would you like to give us a quick summary of the plot? It would be my pleasure. Um, Support the Girls is a film that was released in 2018. It was written and directed by Andrew Bajowski, who's most notable for having been one of the um, accidental inaugurators of mumblecore films in the early 2000s, which was a very anti-cinematic, anti-genre, very grounded approach to telling stories primarily about young white urbanites. Um, Garden State ripped that off and every movie that's ripped off Garden State since then has been ripping off that aesthetic for the last tw going on 20 years. Um, and it was edited by Karen Skloss who's mostly done television work and the director of photography was Matthias Grunsky who's also worked with Bajowski in the past. Uh, the three main leads are Regina Hall, who plays Lisa Conroy, the manager of a restaurant called Double Whammies, um, which is a Hooters-style bar and grill type of restaurant, and she's accompanied by Haley Lou Richardson as Macy, who plays a very enthusiastic young woman, probably in her early 20s, who's an employee at the restaurant. And then also also Shana McHale uh, plays Danielle, another friend and employee at Double Whammies. Shana McHale performs as a hip-hop musician under the name Jungle Pussy. Mm. Um, and I think this is, uh, yes, this is her acting debut mm. in a feature film. So the the film is kind of about it's in the genre of of film of one person's worst day type of movie uh it begins the movie begins with a montage of the highways somewhere in texas you, you can tell it's texas because all the little support beams have the lone star on it mm -hmm. um and it begins with a fun little goofy montage like playing this like fun kind of girl power-ish song, country song, against like the banality of highways. And then it cuts to uh, Regina Hall crying in a car and unbeknownst to us, and as is uncovered over the course of the film, th 
she's had a very bad past couple of hours. Um, one of her employees had to get bailed out of jail because mm -hmm. she ran over her abusive boyfriend with her car. Yeah. Um, she's in the process of separating from her husband. Yeah. And she's just having a hard time at the managing at the restaurant. Uh, the film begins with Regina Hall and Haley Lou Richardson setting up for a series of interviews for new hires and at the end of that process they invite any of them to stay to do a fundraising car wash to raise money for the employee Shayna who ran over her girl or her boyfriend from there the movie just kind of like explores like the relationships that exist between Lisa and her employees and other employees that work in the shopping center that Double Whammies is located in. We also get a long series of scenes showing the interactions between Lisa and the owner of the restaurant, Cubby, who's played by James LaGrosse, and their kind of hostile relationship and the struggles that Lisa has to mitigate the desires of Cubby as a business owner and her desires as like a person to be a supportive manager in a workplace that primarily hires young women. Yeah. Um, there's also a break-in at the restaurant by the family member of one of the back-of-house staff that she deals with. There's you know, it's kind of, it's not a plotless movie because it follow it, it's very organized around one single day and the arc of that day, but it doesn't have, the film has movements more than it has acts, and it just kind of shows these relationships between these characters working in a very gendered and racialized workplace environment that is a peculiar iteration of the service industry, but also speaks to something true about the service industry in general. Um, and the film ends with sort of a, the climax of the film is there's a blow up of sorts during the, the night that a big boxing match is gonna happen, which is a big business night for a sports bar for a sports bar restaurant like this, and there's kind of a revolt by several of the employees, including Danielle and Macy, after Lisa has already de facto been fired. And the movie ends with all of them interviewing at a restaurant called Man Cave, mm -hmm. which is like a national, a growing national chain, also similar to the Hooters concept. Yeah, yeah. And it ends with the three of them standing or sitting on the roof of the restaurant drinking some alcohol that was stolen from double whammies and just kind of like talking out the nature of their relationships to each other and to working in the service industry and their own self-conceptions and it the fantastic final moment of the film is the three of them screaming ab about the situation just screaming for a really long time and it just is a hard cut to black yeah so um, that's a the gist of the movie yeah thank you that's that was a fantastic summary both in the sense that 
I, having only seen it once, I guess a week or two ago, um, probably more than that, I have no sense of time. Uh, I feel a little shaky on the details, but you have brought them back crystal clear and also kind of, uh, kind of illustrated some, some, some themes and some ways in which this movie is. Mm -hmm. So thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, I wanted to talk through some of the power dynamics of this film that I'm sure that you can bring a lot of light to. I want to begin with Lisa, our main character, our point of view character, who is rendered from start to finish very sympathetically. Yes. She is a top advocate for her employees and acts as a wall between them and the owner, mm -hmm. right? The owner who is himself sexist, violent, insecure, just a small person in every way, mm -hmm. especially emotionally. Whereas Lisa is this expansive, generous, self-sacrificing person who at every turn prioritizes other people's needs before her own. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak to that? I think that this podcast specifically has had some sort of questions as to what middle management really does and is. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It would be my pleasure. Um, first off, I just want to say it was such a pleasure for me as someone who had already seen it several times to get to see it with y'all for your first time because mm -hmm. it is just... The first time I finished watching it, the first thing I said to my boyfriend was, I really wish I could watch this movie for the first time all over again. Right. And e each viewing has been illuminating in its own way and such a pleasure and such a joy it absolutely loses nothing upon re-watching right. but if i could have that experience again i would i would trade almost anything for it wow. yeah yeah no um, the, the the joy of like sharing a viewing experience with someone is really special and like that was a powerful movie to watch for the first time not knowing what was going to happen just uh the experience of it was it kind of it kind of gently draws you in from the start and then it's a little bit of a tense emotional roller coaster the movie is never like punishingly shocking or or really really emotionally it's not like i was really put through a hard emotional ringer like i was when i watched say like hereditary or something but it, <laughs> the whole time there was this this tense thread of you know you you you're really drawn in and care about the characters a lot it was it was a ride. It was a ride. Mm -hmm. It was a special experience. And I think that tenseness connects really well to just to our main character Lisa. Um, so Lisa again is the general manager for this restaurant. It seems like she's been a man general manager there for several years at least. And like you said, she's a strong adv. She's middle management is unique. And this, the nature of what middle management is and can be, I think, is so dependent on the context of certain industries. You know, um, what a what the foreman on the floor of a factory can be can be so different or so similar to what the ma the general manager at a retail chain can be compared to the general manager of a restaurant, which you know, restaurants usually don't have nearly as many uh, employees as like large retail stores or or factories or white collar businesses or something like that. So Lisa, to me, is a character who, like you said, is rendered sympathetically throughout and is shown as someone who's like, who's motivated managerially by a desire to pay respect and pay deference to the fact 
that she works with people mm-hmm. and that she works with a population, young women yeah. who are in transitional states in their life mm-hmm. and are dealing with very, very grown things and still learning how to deal with those things. She's shown as a very emotionally mature and centered person Mm -hmm. who is willing to put her time and her energy and her job on the line as a, to support her employees. Um, so I think, and something I noticed when I was rewatching the film this morning is that I think something the movie does an interesting job of doing is like emphasizing both that she's very supportive, but that as a manager, both because of her position, because of her elevated position in a hierarchy, and also because of the emotional responsibility that she rightly takes upon herself as a manager, she's she's very isolated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's reflected. I noticed this this morning. She's often shot alone Mm -hmm. like there's i mean there's plenty of scenes of her with people talking to other people but there's a lot of sequences in the film where she's shot in solitude right either by herself or yelling at a bird yelling at a bird (laughs) or or there will be things in the way that like obscure her and she's almost never shot centered Mm -hmm. um which creates a lack of balance in the image and creates a I think enhances the sense of her like isolation right. and the tension she deals with, um, and, and she's that almost perhaps under underlines the way she she doesn't seem to see herself as like the main protagonist of these stories. She she perhaps sees a role for her supporting folks whose experience she's she's experienced or, or knows about or understands. Mm-hmm. And I and speaking to my own experience as a transgender woman who's recently come out in the past month or I guess it's been more than a month now at the restaurant where I work I have a manager that reminds me a lot of Lisa who's been very supportive and to whom I'm very grateful for that support but I'm also conscientious of like the power dynamic that exists between me as someone working in the front of house um, or work you know just in a non-managerial position and also has managers who are helpful and supportive and so so it's something that resonates with me because the film also has another manager who is sort of the prototypical bad manager which is to say the typical manager Mm -hmm. um someone who's casually cruel interested in exercising power um he says a lot of sexist things Mm -hmm. um he has ideas to promote the business that could potentially endanger the the servers. Um, so, so I, I I don't know. There, Lisa is such a fascinating character because she she's someone who's both in a position of of structural power, mm-hmm. but is trying to mitigate that to greater and lesser degrees of success. But I guess, like, what do y'all think of this character? Like, what stands out to you about Lisa? The isolation really sticks out to me because there's only so much that one person can do alone. Like, a lot of the tension that I think you and Martin mentioned earlier, to me, came from a place of thinking that she was in a financially precarious position. And then as the movie goes along, I'm like, no, wait, 
she actually has a significantly higher salary than the people around her. The precariousness and the scarcity that I'm detecting from her is an emotional scarcity. Like, she's taking on all of these emotional burdens because she can't give her employees the material things that they need for things like childcare, which mm -hmm. she provides. Mm -hmm. She, of her own volition, provides all of these other resources that, in a more collectivized society, or in, say, a workforce with a union, mm -hmm. she might not have to take on out of the goodness of her heart. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, um, exactly. She, she, you know, we never, I don't think we ever see her comment on, like, you know, it's not like she's walking around being like, oh, you know, the, the, the structure of capitalism is unjust, but she really spends the entire movie trying to do the good things that she's specifically in a place not to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's part, I mean, there's a lot of things that she struggles against, including, you know, other people in power, other people with some degree or other of power being, like, horrific to other people. But one of the main struggles that she faces in the movie is just, like, trying to take every kind action she can while being in a position that is designed against those kindnesses and is designed and is supposed to rely on her not caring about the people that she's managing and the people in her life. And I think this movie does a really good job of illustrating the tension between compassion and solidarity, mm -hmm. right? So like liberal compassion is very much like, look at these poor marginalized folks, what can we do to help them? Mm -hmm. As the us and the them, right? Versus the nature of solidarity, which is what can we do together to create a greater collective result for all of us? Not because we pity you, but because we realize that we all have the same rights to the same resources. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very true. And I, I think, so, so I just want to say, based on y'all's comments, something that this movie, I, I was, I watched this movie for the first time, I want to say about a month and a half ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that, closing in on two months. I've, like I said, I've watched it multiple times since then. What really thrills me about it is that, because I'm, along with waiting tables, I'm also an artist, um, and I've been thinking a lot about what is the nature, like, I'm rethinking, because it's something to always be thinking about, how do you speak truthfully to political issues? And I think polemical art is is a very valid way to do that. I'm mm -hmm. very, I, I advance of an opinion about mm -hmm. polemical art that is contrary to a lot of popular opinions. So when you say polemical art, uh, because so, I'm a little shaky, uh, that means like art that is very overtly pushing a certain the, message. The version of this movie that ends with Lisa literally starting a union. Right, right. Or something like right. that, or being like, girls, let's unionize, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, would, which Would y'all call uh, Sorry to Bother You polemical? Um, I, uh... Because hmm. it sort of is, but it's, it's, not. it's I think it's polemical, but I, th well, and I think that's something that's so interesting is that that film, which uh, did very, very well, um, I was I'll admit I was surprised. It made a it made a good deal of money for its budget, but I think compared to I think it's one of those things where, compared to how much it was discussed mm -hmm. at its time of release, I expected it to have had a larger box office right. but it is also available you know I'm sure plenty of people are streaming it on Hulu mm -hmm. um, where it is at present available I'm sure plenty of people are 
watching it with friends, pirating mm. it, accessing it in yeah, however yeah. way possible. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it's being seen by plenty of people, but I would consider, um, I would definitely consider that a polemical film. Certainly more so than moderately, the Girls. Yeah, a moderately polemical film, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think of some, I don't know, I think of some of the Soviet films I've watched, mm -hmm. or uh, there's a documentary that I watched early in my life as like a film, when I was just beginning to develop a taste in film, this movie, Far From Vietnam, mm -hmm. which was an anthology of documentary-style short films by French filmmakers about the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and reflecting on what it meant to be what it meant to be an artist in an imperialist society and one that started a war that it then proceeded to hand off to the United States right. though of course not totally disengage with right, right. Um, but I, those are movies that I think of as very polemical films. Yeah. And this, I think, is very... Came at a time when I was thinking about this in my own art and how, like, if you tell... You can tell... A character story can be utterly polemical so long as it looks at and speaks truthfully to the actual conditions in which people live. Yeah. Um, if we think of all the art... You know, um, so much ostensibly apolitical art is only apolitical if you take it on its own terms. You know, the, the, the example of pointing out that a movie or a book is describing the emptiness of white bourgeois life never addressed in the actual text. Right, right. But if you bring that into your reading, that becomes clearer and available for interpretation. Yeah, yeah. And so this is just an example of a of a film that I watched at a really interesting time in my own artistic life um, because it is so rigorous about examining those sources while choosing to not be polemical, which again is not a dismissal of polemical art. Yeah, it's yeah. not prescriptive. It's right. not prescriptive. Yeah, it's so it doesn't tell us what to do, but all texts exist in a society <laughs> and we bring to them our social critiques and, you know, inform them with our experience. And I want to return to your personal experience as an artist. Yes. So you began these thoughts kind of talking about, I don't know if you would describe it as attention, but at least the interplay between the work that you do in the service industry and the art you make. Yes. The in That's such a good question. The most person-to-person -person level, I work with a lot of artists, and being around other artists at work, just who are passionate about music and film and read interesting books, that just on a very day-to-day -day level motivates me to pursue more of those captivating, interesting works of art and to think about my artwork. You know, it's interesting. I'm not a musician. I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn the bass guitar, um, but... I'm I'm not a musician and so it's interesting to hear musicians talk about their method and their process and their experiences in the studio and relating that to my experiences as a writer and but I guess on a higher level 
you know, I had the privilege of being able to study creative writing at the university level. That was an experience that in retrospect had a lot of very, very frustrating aspects to it. Um, but I do feel very comfortable working with language in a creative way. And I think as far as tension or interplay go, I want to say that there's a back and forth, but to be frank, my experiences as a poet inform me as a server much more than my experiences as a server inf inform me as a poet. Hmm. Um, and the reason I, I mean, you know, you meet interesting people and you have thoughts while you're serving, um, you know, you zone out, you're running table to table, but you're like just doing your own thing. And so there's some of that, you know, I've written poems at work, like during, when I was dead or had an idea or something like that. But, you know, the waiting tables in the United States is a, is a performance art. Um, something that's mentioned several times in support the girls is that the the servers are actually hired as entertainers mm -hmm. um, because of the specific nature of the restaurant and that's actually used to justify the fact that there's never more than one black server scheduled at a right. time so which I want to talk I really want to talk about how this film talks about race and some mm -hmm. of the things in the movie around and about race. Um, but, but as far as my experiences, you know, I am someone who, because of my extracurricular experiences as a teenager and the kind of upbringing I received and the kind of ideas that were communicated to me by my mother and my experiences in college and whatnot, I realized a, a few months ago that I accidentally developed a skill set that prepared me to stand in front of potentially hostile strangers and amuse and entertain them. Mm -hmm. And especially on nights, and you know, I, the, the aspect of how being transgender plays into that is a whole other thing, but, but there are a lot of nights, like when I'm really on it and I'm really present in that performative mode, it just feels like it just it just feels like how an actor feels when they're totally in their flow and they're totally present in their role and you know i i go home and i feel so bad cuz i haven't seen my boyfriend and and you know hours i might not have seen him all day and i really want to talk to him and i really want to see him but i just feel so drained mm -hmm. um and i'm just like i need to not talk for 20 minutes mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing so so I, I feel that like the way in which I'm very thoughtful about language as an artist because I work in a language art makes me well suited and have a small background in performance make me well suited for something like waiting tables and for playing the playing a role and figuring out different roles for different for different customers. I, I have a couple of uh, jokes that I keep in my pocket. Um, and one of them is that if I deliver a really killer joke to a table, I like to make the joke, well, you know, if the service industry doesn't work out, there's always show business yeah. and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, just, I mean, that you know, um, that's another part of it is just that, like, a lot of customers who 
haven't worked in the service industry or maybe worked for a summer or something like that and are um, not to dismiss people who, you know, get a summer job at a restaurant, but it's different from being like a lifer in the service industry or someone who's in the service industry for a really long time. A lot of people don't think about the fact that their servers are performing for them. Mm-hmm. And it's only the fact that, m- I guess like the f- the first thing that ever made me think about that was the fact that my mom used to work in the hospitality industry and it's specifically in the customer facing side of that. So she's the person who kind of hipped me to that. I realize I've been talking very long, but. <laughs> no, this is good stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the nature of that relationship. I bring more of the poetry to my work, to my, employment than I bring my employment to my work as an artist. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That, makes that makes sense to me. And I want to talk a little bit about how one of the contexts of this performance is the tip-based system. Yes. If you weren't operating on a tip-based system, how would do you imagine that would impact the performance you give at work? Um, so I've talked to people who have either worked in the service industry or have been customers and who have worked at the in the in service industries in other countries without tip systems which is the oh, I I don't know I wish I knew, I wish I could say with confidence that this happens only in these places or only this place but I don't I don't have the ability to do that at this point but servers in countries and cultures without a tip system based on what other servers that have worked in those societies or people who've been customers in those other societies tell me is that it's very cultural you know if you are a regular someplace that you've been going for 10 years then of course the people are going to be a lot friendlier to you and a lot warmer to you because they see you three times a week Mm -hmm. um and in some cultures that emphasize emotional distance it's a little more formal and a little less friendly. Mm-hmm. But I was I was talking to a coworker just last night about we were joking sarcastically, you know, isn't it great he he said to me, isn't it great working in an industry where your livelihood is dependent on upon the whims of strangers who may very well be totally hostile to you despite you doing your job to a satisfactory or better degree. Um, And every server has the experiences of the table where they've just, like, served their ass off for that table, just been so charismatic. And it's just a feeling you get when you know you've done a really good job um, waiting a table and then gotten stiffed or gotten, you know, a nice 10%, you know, Mm. or maybe... It's a lot of college kids just sometimes will just like, you know, a lot of young people don't know how to tip. A lot of adults don't know how to tip. And a lot of adults don't realize that like the 15% standard is no longer sufficient in most, is no longer sufficient in really any part of the country. And that there are other parts of the country where you really need to be tipping at least 30%. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You know, the performance, the performance, if if I didn't have to do tips, I would tone it down. I would probably serve the way I serve on a shift where I'm tired or I ran a lot of errands that day Mm -hmm. or I just didn't want to be there emotionally. So I'm polite, 
prompt, informative, and that's it. Right. Um, and I'm just fortunate that I like to perform. Yeah. And that that's something that works for me because a lot of people who work in the industry don't like to perform and don't want to do that and feel obliged or are obliged to because of the nature of the industry. I want to talk about the amount of time that the movie spends between reflecting the tensions at the front of the house versus the back of the house. Mm -hmm. I remember we talked about that some of the night we all watched it. Yeah. Um, so the film makes a decision to mostly not address the back of house. Um, there, there are scenes with the back of house and one of the incidences early in the film is that a family member of one of the back of house employees, the employee's name is, um, Arturo and he's played by da, 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 Steve Zapata. Um, a family member of his tried to break into the restaurant to steal the safe. Um, it's stuck in a tube and got stuck in the like tubing in the ceiling. Um, and it's not lingered on, but in the scenes of the, the back of house, I believe all of the, sir, all of the employees are Latino men, mm -hmm. um, which is a trend in the service industry that does actually exist. And in, in film and television that looks at like, if this was a different kind of movie, that would really bother me. Right. But as a movie that's actually trying to talk about the service industry, that is like, that is not my experience at the restaurant that I work at, but that is true of a lot of restaurants that um, a racial and gender divide exists between the front and back of house. Mm -hmm. A place like Double Whammies in the film can emphasize that gender divide, especially but a lot of restaurants are de facto segregated by gender between front and back of house and de facto segregated, you know, people of color. It'll be mostly people of color in the back of house and mostly white people in the front of house. Again, this is something that's going to depend on the hiring decisions of the management mm -hmm. um, at any given place. But those that does speak to a reality of the of the service industry. Um, I still don't know how to feel about the fact that the person who tried to break in was a family member of seemingly one of the head cooks in the in the back of house. Um, I feel a lot of complicated feeling. I, I'm still trying to parse that. That's something that I'm still chewing on. Um, I think it's interesting that. The only other major, um, the only other major Latino character in the film is Officer Dominguez, um, played by Luis Olmeda. There, there's a lot around that stuff that I'm still kind, kind of trying to parse. Mm. But the film mostly ignores the back of house outside of the thread of this film involving the attempted break-in, which I think speaks to something true about. A, how a lot of customers think about the restaurants that they dine at. Mm -hmm. A lot of, a lot of, you know, patrons are aware that someone is making their food and their awareness very well may 
end at that. They may be in a restaurant that's packed because it's a holiday and wonder why it's taking more than um, 15 minutes for their food to come out. That right. is not uncommon. And then I think it's also true of how a lot of front of house staff at a lot of restaurants think of the, or don't think of the back of house. Um, talking to people, talking to co-workers and other people that have worked in the service industry, the restaurant industry, um, there is, it is not unusual for there to be a great deal of hostility between the front of house and the back of house. And that's not been my experience at the particular restaurant I work, for which I'm very appreciative, mm -hmm. but it is a reality that a lot of times there's a lot of gendered and racialized antagonism that exists between the front and back of house. Mm -hmm. um, or it is just the case that any given restaurant's back of house works harder. You know, the work is a lot more laborious. It's a lot more uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the social element that serving customers has. And that is difficult work, um, especially if a restaurant's patrons don't have a sense of treating servers with respect. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of that can be shift by shift. You can have one night where everyone's just an angel to you and another night where everyone's just decided you're going to be who they take it all out on. Mm -hmm. And but but I I feel comfortable saying that my opinion is that the back of house the amount of labor that's involved the and the utterly physically draining nature of that labor is obviously not that it's a contest or that not that this was the question you're asking. I'm personally of the opinion that like the average back of house person at a restaurant is doing more difficult labor physically than the physical labor that the average server is doing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of servers at different restaurants don't think about the relationship they have. You know, the extent of their relationship might be like, why is my uh, table 10 taking so long and not anything beyond that? Right, okay. right. Well, and this kind of segues into what we were talking about in the movie, the policy. I'm not sure if it was a written policy or a, just a practice that was adopted by Double Whammies in the movie, but the limit on the number of people of color that could be serving at any given time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So very early in the movie, Danielle points out that that is a scheduling policy that uh, Lisa is obliged to follow by direct order of Cubby, the owner. Mm -hmm. And Danielle obviously expresses frustration about this. And it's something that's, that she brings up several other times in the movie. And during a car ride scene with Cubby and Lisa, the name of the policy that encourages a diverse workforce, a diverse front of house staff is referred to by such a wonderful, like a one, a wonderful name for this kind of policy, for this kind of policy, which is the like rainbow guideline or the rainbow right. policy. Right. Um, and he says, you know, oh, that's a guideline, not a requirement. Um, I don't know a lot about the specifics of the service industry in Texas. I don't know if that's something that exists just within that restaurant or if it's something that might be alluding to 
real or existing workplace regulations in Texas that are guidelines at best. Mm -hmm. um, and Cubby's very dismissive of Lisa pointing. Lisa says, you know, the girls aren't stupid. They notice how the staffing works. Yeah. And he's very dismissive of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's something that is that is uh, maybe not as explicit as in this restaurant, but often as explicit as in this restaurant, how staffing will be done on a week-by-week -week basis. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for talking us through that plot point. Um, there's so many different moments where you see individual workers kind of bringing their concerns to the table and Lisa doing her best to, as we mentioned earlier, just take on all of it mm -hmm. herself. Mm -hmm. An example in it's so you mentioned the break in earlier. The break in wasn't something that she reported to the owner of the restaurant, which he took as a reason to fire her. To he's, finally be able to terminate her. Right, mm -hmm. because yeah. he's been trying to do so forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one of the lines in the movie is like, there's only so many times that you can fire someone and they won't come back the next morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he, yeah, he, he seems to, based on what we see, we can kind of assume that uh, the fact that she sometimes does things slightly differently from the way he would want them done only ever because she's trying to help someone right. has like been grinding on him gradually over time and very slowly coming to outweigh the fact that like he needs her extreme level of self self-sacrificial competence to keep everything running right her self-sacrifice makes low turnover at that place or lower than it might otherwise be possible mm -hmm. and he doesn't appreciate that. He sees that as a waste of time and energy when, mm. in fact, it's kind of what's keeping everything together. So finally, she is driven to the point where she feels that, yeah, this is my last day. I am actually going to accept this termination, finally. Um, she began the day with a fundraiser to help the one of her employees who hit her abusive boyfriend with her car. Yes. And the day ends with her realizing that her employee has gotten back together with this boyfriend. Yes. That, th yes, that scene is huge. Yeah, where... that, 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 like, blew me away. There was, there's so much going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's try and tease apart that dynamic here. So, uh, when Lisa, she has put so much work and sacrifice into this, she has... Uh, risked her job doing this. Um... She probably lost her job. She probably in part lost her job because of the you know the 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 break in is the cover, mm -hmm. and then there's also this you know it's a it's a one bad day movie. So this is definitely part of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so she has put everything on the line um, to get everyone to do this car wash to raise money for this person who needs oh. it, um, and then when Lisa finds out that she is sticking with her abusive boyfriend, which in Lisa's point of view is absolutely the wrong thing for her to do, you get this sense, like, you can just see the, the, the feelings and the thoughts in her head. You see that she's torn about this, but you also see that, um, perhaps in part because she's been pushed to the limit by so many things, she's like, I have done everything. I've mustered all of my effort, all of my self-sacrifice, all of my knowledge and wisdom, to help you out in this way, and you were, in, in my view, uh, in, in what you assume is, is Lisa's view, 
throwing it away on this piece of shit dude who's gonna hurt you again and again and she's like i'm i'm not giving you the money and lisa doesn't want to keep the money she goes on to try to or she gets arturo who was fired because Mm -hmm. of his cousin breaking into the restaurant to return the money to the restaurant to the safe to the safe Mm -hmm. yes because she 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 can't stomach giving the money knowing that it's going to be used by the person not only the person she wants to help but also her abusive boyfriend and also in that scene um shana the employee who hit her boyfriend with a car does point out just be like helping people doesn't entitle you to dictate their life right and that's that's such a pivotal thing i i i thought about this a lot because um my experience as a social worker and someone who's recently in social work school, I think about the character of as Lisa both as simultaneously, she's kind of being like what a social worker is supposed to be throughout this Oof. movie. A um, bandage on the gaping wound of capitalism. A bandage on the gaping wound of mm-hmm. capitalism. Uh, enormously self-sacrificing at all times, uh, enormously creative in finding ways to get around regulations, business rules, any rule standing in the way of her making life bearable for other people. That's what social workers are theoretically supposed to do. I can imagine showing this movie to social work colleagues and kind of everyone feeling a mix of like aspirational feeling towards like, oh, Lisa is so great, I need to be just like her. But also we see how like ultimately this doesn't work. She eventually gets to her breaking point and um, not to pass judgment on Lisa, but we kind of see, like, she is constantly struggling to, like, help others, but also kind of exert this control over the chaotic world in ways that she can't really exert control. And, and we're, we're confronted with this when when she sees that uh, Shayna is not going to accept her help in the way that Lisa would like Shayna to accept that help. Um, and you kind of, as much as Lisa is absolutely an admirable character throughout the movie, um, she she's doing amazing things with the shit situation that she's in but we also see that like she's grasping at straws that ultimately aren't going to work like like we kind of talked about the difference between uh what were we saying compassion and solidarity solidarity. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. her her compassion as noble as it is and as much good as it truly does is not going to fix the problems that we see in the movie right And I just want to expand on that, like a larger systemic way of looking at that is the difference between charity, which is Mm -hmm. an individual's desire to give what they can give versus like universal public services and goods that are just abundant and available and guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a much lighter counterpoint to this idea happens right before this scene where as Lisa is leaving work, Macy informs her that that she, Macy, has been in a relationship with one of the regulars at the restaurant for a very long time and mm-hmm. that this was something that was known by everyone in the front of house and it right. was just kept a secret um, from Lisa from only. Lisa because she said, I know you wouldn't like it and I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Right. Um, so there's kind of like, I think, a lighter counterpoint yeah, that yeah. sets up this conflict of like, well, what can't, you know... You... It's the same like, you, you, you can't be in control in the way you want to, mm-hmm. but also the, the world isn't quite burning down. I mean, 
it's burning in the way that it's always burning, but yes. it's not falling apart. You're not you're not the atlas carrying the world as much as sometimes you feel you are. Yeah, people can break the rules to benefit themselves too. It's mm-hmm. not just on you right. to be their yeah. paladin. Yeah, I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's very much explored. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to talk about the ending of the movie with yeah. you. Oh yes, the yes, last please. the last scene. Yeah. Um, so you, you were talking about how powerful it was that they all scream at the end, um, but I, I, I think I think our description hasn't done it justice enough yet. There, I'll I'll expand it out a little yeah, bit. So yeah, they've they've all been interviewed at the man cave, this international or this national chain. Danielle and Macy were interviewing for server positions. Lisa was interviewing for a management position. I also noticed when I rewatched this that the only time she's in, that Regina Hall is in genuine close-up is in scenes of either direct conflict. I believe she's she's in she's in close-up with the scene the scene in the car between her and Cubby, mm-hmm. and then she's in close-up in the interview for Man Cave, mm-hmm. um, which I, I just think it's interesting. And the over the course of the interview, it becomes clear through Regina Hall's masterful performance that she finds this kind of work environment stifling and overly corporatized mm-hmm. and indifferent to... The, the interviewer makes a joking reference to the high turnover that the restaurant experiences. Mm-hmm. So... It's cl- it's clear through Regina Hall, the perf- the acting in this film is absolutely phenomenal. It really every- is. There's no poorly acted scene in the film, and I think every every main player, every minor player, is just acting their ass off. Yeah, it's outrageous. The, the corporate interviewer too, you know. The corporate interviewer is great. Yeah, she did exact. She she really conveyed exactly what that was. So following the interview. They decide to sneak onto the ceiling of the building, or the mm-hmm. the the roof of the building, and they're sharing a liquor bottle, um, Danielle, Macy, and Lisa, and they're reflecting on the experiences they had at Double Whammies. They're reflecting on the fact that they've all lost their job, and they're all shown as being in different stages of their life. You know, um, Lisa is someone who's been in management for a very long time and is probably in her late 30s or early 40s. Danielle is probably in her late 20s and Macy is in her early 20s. So kind of like, which are three pivotal, I think, like age distinctions within the service industry. Uh, Danielle even says there'll be more shitty jobs. You know, there. Yeah. You know, we're not. Uh, me and Macy aren't sad that we lost our shitty job. There'll be more shitty jobs, mm-hmm. and Lisa's just very contemplative about the whole thing and feels very sad about how everything worked out. Uh, it's also her laying down with her head on her purse, looking up at the sky and commenting on how um, this. This was such an authentic moment in the film. She says, sometimes when I close my eyes, um, when I'm next to the highway, it feels like I'm at the ocean. Mm-hmm. And while just staring up at, while she's just staring up at the sky, clearly very emotionally torn. And that's one of, that's also one of the very, very few scenes where she gets a genuine close-up and her, and she's, and Regina Hall is centered in the frame. And Macy starts screaming because Lisa's like, 
Oh, Danielle, you said something earlier. First you start, first you cry, then you laugh, then you freak out. And Danielle's like, yeah, scream, scream your ass off. And so they go to the edge of the building and they start screaming really, really, like real screaming. Not, Mm -hmm. not, not Macy even, I guess probably in like the last joke of the movie does a party scream and Danielle's like, no, that's a party scream. You got to scream. Like you got to really scream. And they all just scream for a solid 20 or 30 seconds. The last, you know, half minute of the movie is just these three characters and near three fourths profile screaming. And I feel like that is sort of, I don't think the movie expresses like a revolutionary call. Mm hmm. Um, but I do think that the film expresses an insurrectionary impulse. Yeah. Um, and it when I the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, this reminds me of some of the like graffiti I read from like like some of the photography from May nineteen sixty eight in in Paris. Like just the just the explosion of like rage and frustration. And I think. Um, I would. I don't think every movie that seeks to express political ideas has to do everything politically, mm-hmm. and I think it's noteworthy at all that that an American film expressed an insurrectionary impulse at all is like amazing. That's another reason why I so loved Sorry to Bother You, which does express an insurrectionary and an organizational call. But but I but the movie ends. It ends on this stark, dramatic expression of rage across middle management and I guess like ground level employment employees. Yeah. I need to talk about the scene leading up to this, which is the last shift that Danielle and Macy work at Double Whammies. Yes. Okay. So this is their first shift working without Lisa. Yes. Lisa has by now gone. Danielle and Macy are watching a new sexist culture rear its ugly head as Cubby and some random guy in a position of power are kind of bringing their sexist remarks and their overbearing management methods to this space. And Danielle is just wandering around, now the manager. Now, yes. Just wandering around being like, fuck this. This is terrible. And so she starts instigating little Mm -hmm. moments of chaos. She messes up the cable that was just fixed during this big the night of this big fight yeah or whatever yeah uh like at one point they get shut down because one of the new hires from that morning shows her nipple Mm -hmm. they engage in a wildcat strike yes Mm -hmm. they shut that place down and it is not because they have certain demands it's not because they're trying to organize a better work culture they're just like Fuck this. There mm-hmm. are other shitty jobs. Yes. Mm-hmm. The place gets shut down. Cubby gets shown something and he can't do anything about it because mm-hmm. their demands are to burn the bridge. Right. We talk about the wildcat strike that ends at one of the novels we read. Um, we want everything. We want everything. That movie, like Sorry to Bother... I mean, sorry, that book, much like Sorry to Bother You, ends the day after the revol- or the day of the revolution where mm-hmm. everything goes up in flames. Mm-hmm. Except... Instead of ending with everything going up in flames and double whammies, we see them interviewing at the next job, the next shitty job, mm-hmm. all engaging in this in like interpersonal human joy of just screaming together as people, independent in this limbo of being jobless. Mm-hmm. For this precious moment, they are here as people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think. 
I wouldn't have thought to, but I think your use of the word joyful is so such a striking observation, like this expression, like rage and frustration being expressed in a joyful manner. I think that's so accurate and so speaks to, I mean, I don't, I personally don't read the ending of the movie as a quote unquote happy ending, but it does express something very life affirming about mm -hmm. rage. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's such an astute observation. I also, I also wanted to take a moment to talk about one character in particular, who's probably my favorite second, easily my favorite secondary character. You mentioned this, the sexist culture, which there are scenes of that. It's shown that a sexist customer culture exists, even under Lisa's rule or Lisa's management, and. Um, she deals with that in one scene, but there's a character who, during that wildcat strike, shows back up but has been present in little bits throughout the movie that I am just in love with is the character of Bobo. Yes! Bobo! Um, Bobo. Bobo! Bobo is played by... Da, 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 Leah Delaria, who... I am told was also in Orange is the New Black mm. um, as Big Boo, um, if I remember it correctly. Um, and she plays, and, and she's this, oh, this is the first time I've seen a movie that wasn't a lesbian movie where like a butch as fuck uh, lesbian, <laughs> just like, just like l lesbian character is shown as I mean, she's amusing because she's an amusing person, mm -hmm. but the joke, the joke is never, she's a butch lesbian. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Isn't the it joke is not her existence. Yeah. The joke is not her existence. The joke is the fact that she is a mega regular who waits for the restaurant to open and likes to listen to a police scanner app recreationally and takes videos of conflicts at the restaurant and during that wildcat strike, one of the tables is making these really sexist remarks about uh, Macy and Danielle, and Bobo goes to confront him about it and challenges him to a fight, and he makes some degrading, you know, disgusting remark to Bobo, and she's like, we'll do this outside, like, we'll, do, like, I will fight you, and I don't know, there's just so much about that, I just wanted to mention her, because that's a character that, like, as a bisexual woman with so many uh, friends who are lesbians, and knows so many butch women, butch lesbians, and just loves so, so dearly those people in my life, um, it was just kind of, like, thrilling to see a character who, like, was a butch lesbian and was funny and was meant to be the closest thing this movie has to straightforward comic relief mm -hmm. but that comic relief emerged out of like her behaviors as a quirky person from texas mm -hmm. and yeah. not her sexuality or what have you yeah yeah that's so true like whereas lisa represents a kind of like compassionate fearlessness like Bobo was ferocious. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bobo was like always ready to fight. 
for what is right. Yes. And I enjoy her so much. I enjoy her presence in the movie <laughs> quite a bit. It was it was something that I really, really didn't expect the first time I watched it. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm glad that character stuck around. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 glad we I'm glad we got to to Bobo. Mm -hmm. um, God bless Bobo. Truly. So so I want to return again to the end, the kind of coda of the movie, if we still mm -hmm. got a little time. I love that, like, the movie up until, you know, after the revolution, up until that, that point, um, it's all just, like, centered on, on Lisa's day. Almost all of the action takes place either at the restaurant or on a business drive for the restaurant. Um, and then you kind of, the, the film draws you in and you kind of, it kind of puts you in a s part of Lisa's mindset, which is just kind of like, oh, I everything here is what's important. I need to save the people mm -hmm. at this restaurant who I care about. And then part of that cathartic coda is that we are suddenly taken away from that. Time has passed. We're, we're in a different, you know, those jobs are gone. We don't care about them anymore. It's, it's like, shot okay. really differently, too. Right, right, like, right. There's a lot more distance between the camera and the actors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just stuff like that. Yeah, anyways, and, just to... Yeah. I, I, think, I think you could say that maybe it's one aspect of that ending that is happy, even if it's not a happy ending, is that we get the sense that um, for all of the good that Lisa was doing, she was she was too caught up in, in the struggle that she was in. She, you know, was maybe attached to it in a way that wasn't serving her. I mean, you know, obviously, like, nothing was serving her. She was struggling against so many terrible things. But uh, we get the... We, we see that she was kind of ripped away from this, and perhaps she has a little more space to, to breathe and be herself a little bit, or at least begin to. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, I'm sure there are many more challenges to come in her life. Um, yeah, even in that isolation, even when the camera takes the long view on, say, her screaming at a bird while taking a brief break, right? Handling all of these stressful phone calls with different people. Um, you know, it still felt very claustrophobic, mm -hmm. yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. She mm -hmm. was too willing to speak on the terms of the different forces that were oppressing her in the moment. Mm -hmm. Like, too willing to engage with them one-on-one -on -one, mm -hmm. and not necessarily able to conceive of a world outside of that. Yeah, And that like, distance is so important. We, we could tell that she had, like, absolute contempt for many of the evil people causing, creating problems for everyone, but you could also tell that... Uh, I guess we don't know exactly what's going on in her head, but we, we don't see her being like, oh, the very... the we don't know how much she understands of like, oh, the very the very terms on which all of this is happening is deeply wrong and needs to be like so different. Or yeah. she doesn't articulate it. Maybe she is thinking she, that, but she she does I I'll say this, she does like really resist Cubby when Cubby criticizes her for getting too involved in the quote unquote drama mm -hmm. of the employees' lives. She gives like very strong resistance to that. Um it's phrased in kind of an amusing way where she's like, do you really want me to tell a bunch of 20-year-old girls no drama? Um, why don't I put up a sign that says no breathing? Right. Um, so it's it's put in an amusing way, but like... True. It does seem like she is genuinely aware that like this restaurant is emblematic of a part of capitalist society is is inhuman in the fact that it's not recognizing the realities of human life. Yeah, yeah. The, the realities of human life that it itself 
creates and also expresses mm-hmm. yeah. under capitalist society. Th- that makes sense. That's true. Yeah. Um, anyway, this is, this is half a step away, but I wanted to ask what y'all thought about or what y'all took from, because this is maybe the one part of the movie that I, that I most had a feeling of, I'm not sure if I fully understand what's going on here. The interview with when they're at Man Cave and the interview that Lisa has with the, the corporate Man Cave um, HR or uh, hiring personnel, you get this sense that like there's something that that interviewer really doesn't get and like or or that Lisa she really has disdain for this corporate approach but on on the other hand you kind of get this feeling that maybe this new corporate job that some of the film's characters might take on will perhaps lack some of the particular shitty aspects that were plaguing them throughout the movie. You might imagine that there's maybe a little bit less of a culture of, like, uh, a power-hungry owner doing, like, absolutely bonkers shit, like, uh, probably not as much driving home after someone trying to beat them up kind of stuff. Um, Oh, yeah. So, I don't don't know, like, I'm not sure what... I, I don't know exactly what we're supposed to take from that kind of scene where where we kind of get a little bit of a feeling of this new corporate job that they might be approaching. Obviously, it's not like, oh, a better life for them or something, but it also doesn't seem like truly worse, but Lisa has feelings about what this might be. Like, what, what do y'all take from that? So I felt that the corporate interviewer that Lisa was speaking to at the Man Cave, you know, interview headquarters, I don't know, mm-hmm. at those offices, that person this statuesque, long-haired, very prim and proper person wearing red was neoliberal Satan. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> so let's face it, these women that we're hiring, we're not hiring them for their brains. And we've created guidelines that are idiot-proof. Mm-hmm. And we also need to focus on the fact that we need our employees to look a certain way. And so, you know, we just, it's kind of beautiful if you think about how much bigger Man Cave is than any single one of us. Mm-hmm. Right. In this way, kind of trying to equate high turnover and superficial or, or like very body-centric hiring practices to feminist liberation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She is a perfect example of the ways that like we can intellectualize ways that capitalism reduces us to just little cogs and machines that do not care about our individual survival at right. all. Right, and then the kicker is that she used to work as a server in that kind of establishment. And she kind of presents this as like, oh, I have love for this industry because I've been there. But mm-hmm. then she's just like casually like, oh, these girls are dumb. Yeah, you know? I've um, come out on top of this pyramid scheme. Right. <laughs> Thus the pyramid scheme works. Yeah. yeah. So So it's kind of like... It's kind of like, uh, on the one hand, like, it's like, oh, the, the same shit that we've been dealing with through the whole movie, except, like, slicker and more efficient and uh, with this, this sheen of faux empowerment. That kind of sounds like that's part of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's a, a reading of that interview scene that, like, I don't know, not that it's necessarily commenting directly on this, but it does feel to me kind of... It resonates with sort of the tran- the cultural transition from post-New Deal American capitalist society into beginning in the 70s, like digital cybernetic um, managerial capitalism mm-hmm. and the way in which Lisa re- expressing this like optimistic view of what a workplace can, what a 
thoroughly capitalistic workplace can be like um, expressing a kind of older view of like the kind of job security that an employee should be able to enjoy even under capitalism Mm -hmm. which you know versus this like very rapid again like digitalized workplace where you know kind of like the adoption of the 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 factory model to all forms of society are you talking about like the gig economy the gig economy um or like Jobs that are de facto gigs just by virtue of the right. turnover yeah, that's yeah, built yeah. into them. Yeah. And mm. the use of, like, data to manage large workforces, like, large data, b- big data, quote-unquote, mm. and thing. I, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but just sort of, like, the idea of, like, the cultural shift, the cultural aspect of the shift to neoliberalism. Yeah, I, I see. I, I get what you're saying. I, I know there's not a... I, I don't know if we've stumbled on the perfect phrase for it, but, like, I don't know. I think anyone who's who's worked in these kinds of entry-level jobs in the past 10 years is, yeah. like, going to know what we're talking about yeah. here. Right, or, yeah, like, it, the same logic applies to freelancing. Rather than yeah. have a salary or you know, stable benefits that you can count on. Here's this piecemeal work that is given to you in an extremely meritocratic way, Mm -hmm. where if you fail to produce enough in order to survive, then you yourself have failed. Mm -hmm. You and you alone have failed yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you you have flexibility. You should be able to do what you love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You should be able to leverage your privileges in order to exist in a meritocratic system that is not meritocratic at all. Mm -hmm. So, I feel like I feel like are we are we perhaps approaching an end point for this discussion? Why don't we just maybe some closing remarks? Just any final thoughts yeah, from yeah, final anyone thoughts. who'd like to? I'll, I'd like to go last. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I would mainly just want to uh, emphasize my gratitude to you for bringing everything that you have brought to this movie and this conversation with us, so thank you for being here. Yeah, yeah, truly, thank you so much for that. Thank you for recommending this movie. I wouldn't have watched it if it weren't for your recommendation. It's a fantastic movie. There, There's such a rarity for movies to be this critical of capitalism. This, you know, I, I think it's an enormous sign of, like, strength and artistic power um, that this movie is so, like, non-polemical and yet says so much about life under capitalism in the United States and so many different aspects of that, some of which I, like, know a little bit about, some of which are other people's experiences. Yeah, truly fantastic film. I'm so glad that I watched it and got to talk about it with my friends. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. Um... This is a movie that I've just grown so passionate about and will really be a movie that I carry with me all my life. Um, just as in terms of just being one of the movies that really, really matters to me. Um, and I guess if I would have one final thought, I would just encourage anyone listening to, you know, seek out films that address issues of race and gender and capitalism you know, it can be, it can feel, this is such a rare film in some ways, but in other ways there are, there is so much out there that can address these issues. Um, talk to people, Google, use Google, um, one, only time I'll say that, um, you know, get out there, learn about the, the history of 
critical cinema and cinema that criticizes capitalist society, racist society. There are are enough movies about that along those lines that one could never watch any other kind of movie for their entire life. So um, I just encourage everyone to be adventurous in their film going and film viewing. And I'm right now I'm working on a mini series. Uh, not I'm viewing a mini series from West Germany. Okay, I was about to be very excited. <laughs> I, w- I wish I, I wish I could I wish I could drop that big announcement. I'm watching a mini series right now called Eight Hours Don't Make a Day mm-hmm. by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender. And it was, I believe it was relatively early in his career, and it was a television series that got several episodes cut, but I know that it's in general, uh, and I'm still early in it, but I know that it's generally about, like, the fight for equity on a factory workplace in West Germany um, in in the labor conditions of the 70s. And actually, now that I think about it, it's later Fassbender. That's a minor. That's a minor detail. Um, but you know, all of that is to say that you know there's so many fantastic. You know, sorry to bother you. Um, much of Spike Lee's filmography, um, the you know, Soviet cinema um, is rich with these kinds of things. And to also encourage listeners to bring counter readings to movies, movies that challenge its uh, the assumptions that are so built in mm-hmm. to so much of um, American film storytelling, and to express those and to encourage your friends to to watch movies that express gen- that express rage and a vision and a hope for a more just society. For sure. I love that. Those yeah, are, those are good words. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Yeah, let's keep exposing ourselves to pieces of culture that keep us kind to the people that we can build solidarity solidarity with, and keep us angry at everyone else. Absolutely, <laughs> truly. Um, okay, thank y'all, sweet listeners, for tuning in. Oh, real quick, the movie's available on Hulu, and if you're listening to this, you know how the internet works. So yeah. get it wherever you can. Yeah. True. And we'll link to it where we can. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all. Have a good night, everyone. Keep it classless. Keep it classless. Keep it classless. Keep it classless.